0: Good morning. We are reading today from Genesis chapter 38, and we're reading all the way from verse 1 to verse 30. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in chazi when she bore him. And Judah took a wife from, for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house, Sheila my son grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hera the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father in law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to a Naim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at a Naim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place have said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in the womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Johanna. Johanna always gets the crazy passages. You have to find a way to cut the tension after that. Listen, if, if you're visiting us for the first time, uh, it's, it's not... We don't, we don't always pick biblical passages about uh, scandalously depraved circumstances. Uh, but we are, we are working our way through the book of Genesis. Uh, Because Genesis chapters 12 through 50 record the history of a family. A real family. A family that's as messed up as our families are. And it's a family to whom God first revealed his plan of salvation for all of humanity. This one family and their subsequent generations. Abraham, Sarah, their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. But this particular episode is not one that inspires, does it? Is it? Uh, I do want to say this, this is a safe place to wrestle with issues that trouble us, okay? We, we work really hard to make this a safe place to deal with difficult matters, whether it's in the culture or whether it comes right out of the Bible and we raise objections to it. So let me, let me start by opening it up to you with a very simple question. What troubles you as you read this account of Genesis chapter 38? Uh, listen, just short answers because we have a very limited amount of time. Uh, but I want to hear from you uh, at first blush. What troubles you about this account? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, incest. Okay. Although what's interesting is, you know, and I, and I agree with some scholars, that's in reality what happens Um, And at the same time, uh, Judah thinks he's, (laughs) Judah can't really be accused of incest because he doesn't know who it is. But he obviously is fornicating. But it's a mess. Yeah, good. What else? Yeah. Yes. Judah orders the death of his daughter-in-law. And in his own self righteous uh, hypocrisy right he He judges her for something that he's done, yeah, and there's a double standard between men and women there that is that comes right out in this passage that God addresses and speaks against. check the book of Hosea chapter four what else what else is troubling to you? yeah. Practices, the practice of brothers having to take over for other brothers—yeah, that's that's wacky. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. God striking people dead. God striking people dead. Yeah. Any others? Good. It's starting to all come out. <laughs> and I can't—we can't address every single issue and objection uh, today. We can't. Uh, we can over coffee, but uh, I, I have a brief brief time to to share with you today. Any others? What troubles you about this? That's it, really? Just the four or five things you mentioned? <laughs> That's great. It's a good start. Well, thank you for being honest with me. This, this digression into Judah's situation is troubling. Uh, I think it's especially troubling because you really want to hear about Joseph. What happened to Joseph? Last week, we just looked at Joseph, this young man with his life in front of him. All this promise. Right? He's banished to Egypt. He's sold as a slave into Egypt, and, and we don't know what's become of him. And that's where you want to go. But master storytellers don't operate that way. When you find out that Frodo Baggins has been captured by the enemy, and you want to know if he's alive or not, you've got to read hundreds of pages of stuff about other people wondering what happened to Frodo. This is just plain old good storytelling. You're you're wondering, what is going on with Joseph? And yet, this is a sidebar to talk about Judah and what happened to him over the next 20 years while Joseph is stuck in Egypt. It's master storytelling. It's not a careless diversion. It's critical character development for Israel's history. Jacob you're going to read this later in Genesis. Jacob will one day grant the birthright of his family. His primary inheritance. He's going to grant the birthright to Judah. Judah's the fourth of 12 sons. And the birthright to the ancients was a big deal. And, and Jacob is going to give it to Judah someday. Judah is going to rise to prominence Amongst all his brothers. But in the current situation of his daughter in law, Tamar's welfare, Judah fails miserably. He, res, he, he exhibits a lack of discretion over where he lived, whom he associated with, and whom he married. He shows a lack of reason in superstitiously thinking that his son's dying. Are his daughter-in-law's fault. He he displays a lack of justice. In not honoring. Tamar's situation. His daughter-in-law had a right. To be the mother. Of whoever would inherit. His fortune. And he denied her of that justice. He shows a lack of self-control. In hiring a prostitute. After he had become a widower. You know, the New Testament describes Jesus Christ the Messiah as the Lion of Judah. And what we should be doing right now is going, What? The Lion of Judah? Well, what about why not the Lion of Joseph? Because it's all the plot is building around Joseph. Joseph becomes a stud. In all the positive ways. So we're thinking as you read Genesis. It should be the lion of Joseph. Joseph's going to be the guy. Joseph's going to be the one. But the lion of Judah. And it's at this point that we see. And I'm going to have to tease this out. We see that biblical Christianity is unique among the world's religions. And is unique within human nature. Because what people do is attribute the greatest honor and allegiance to imperfect people. People obsessively follow great men and women to a fault. Moses, Muhammad, the Buddha, the Apostle Peter, all the popes. Maybe an American president. Maybe the leader of, religiously speaking, a mega church. But the Bible explicitly, again and again, resists the temptation to immortalize great men and women. The father of the greatest tribe of Israel, the tribe out of which kings would come, Judah, was first portrayed in biblical history as a total wretch. And I think episodes like this again and again throughout history Uh, Can we get to the next slide? Sorry, we're missing uh, an important piece to our clicker. So uh, I have a manual clicker today. Thank you, Micah. What I hope you're going to see, and you see this throughout biblical history, and it's just true in life, that God's choice always draws attention to his unique glory, to his unique goodness. God's choice of leaders, the good ones and the bad ones always draws our attention to his unique capabilities as a leader. And today I want to talk to you about the history of God's choices and the irony of God's choices. And finally, I want to talk to you about the scandal of God's choices. The history, the irony, and the scandal of God's choices. The history of God's choices for leadership is eye-opening, and you see it right away in Genesis. It was Isaac, Abraham's younger son, and not Ishmael, the firstborn, who who received the promises of God. It was Jacob, not Esau, who receives the birthright from Isaac. And now it is Judah, of all of Jacob's 12 sons, Judah of all people, Who's going to rise to prominence amongst all his brothers and eventually inherit the birthright and begin the line of the Messiah himself. And I think at the heart of what we're concerned about uh, can be found in next slide, please. In in, uh, verse eight, Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother now you go, what? And let's talk a little bit about the context. Yeah, we do need to, to understand where it's all coming from. It goes back to what you see in verse 1. You discover that Judah, when he became a man, settled down among the Canaanites. Now you already know if you've been following the Genesis story. You already know from Lot's story. And you know from Esau's situation that hanging out with the Canaanites is not going to bode well for Judah. His best friend was a Canaanite. He married a Canaanite. And he had three sons. Three half Canaanite sons who all turned out to be, according to the passage, wicked. These were not good boys. Now the oldest son, who should inherit all that Judah has... The oldest son dies, uh, leaving leaving uh, judah 's daughter in law Tamar in a difficult position as an ancient widow. Uh, widows need to be needed to be protected from injustice and from poverty in the ancient world, uh, and so widows had to go back to their family of origin if their husbands died, or hopefully the family they married into will take care of them. Now, in the ancient Middle Eastern culture, there was this concept of leveret marriage. The the Latin word, levir, it means brother-in-law. And there was the sense where the family was responsible to take care of the widow by providing for her another son from the family. So that the name of the deceased son, his honor, and his inheritance would continue. And that inheritance wouldn't be lost by being given to Uh, the next son in line. So culturally, Tamar had the right to be the mother of whoever is going to inherit all that Judah has. So the next son, Onan, was obliged to marry her uh, to produce an heir for his older deceased brother. And what happened centuries later uh, when when? Jacob's boys' descendants became a nation themselves, and they needed a civil law unto themselves. Moses, by God's design, commanded them to deal with the situation. Apparently, it was a cultural issue, uh, but it finds its way into the Mosaic law. Uh, Next slide. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 25, God, through Moses, said to the Israelites, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now you've heard me say this before. God's to, guys, don't get any bright ideas and go emailing and calling your sisters-in-law. Uh, Ladies, don't call your brothers-in-law and get any big ideas. The original design in the Bible for marriage is one man and one woman. And polygamy is the result of the curse of humanity's sin. Uh, But it was not originally God's design. And what Jesus said to the Pharisees thousands of years later was, God gave you certain concessions in his law because of the wickedness and stubbornness of your own hearts. So in a sense, God, as wacky as it seems to us, put some restrictions in place so that people could not be abused and left open to injustice, especially women who were widowed in the ancient world and had no legal or financial recourse. And so the idea is God says to a family, you take care of this woman that you've taken in. That's the heart of the law. This was such a serious situation in ancient Israel. It would become such a serious situation that if you read on, read on in your own time, uh, keep going down into Deuteronomy chapter 25. Because if a younger brother was unwilling to marry his widowed sister-in-law, the woman, the widow, had the right in public, in front of all the elders of the town, had the right to approach him and Oops, had the right to approach him and knock his easel over, had the right to approach the unwilling brother-in-law, take off his sandal and spit in his face in the presence of the elders of the town. She had that right. That's why Onan was judged so severely for wasting his oats instead of sowing them. But Judah sends Tamar away. He doesn't want to deal with it. He gives her another son. Uh, That guy dies too. Forget this woman. She's bad luck. And uh, he says, go back to, just go back to your father's house. When my youngest son grows up, you can have him. He has no intention of giving Tamar another husband. And she knows it. Tamar later takes matters into her own hands and she deceives Judah as a prostitute. And uh, he basically asks her. For he doesn't know who, who she is, and he asks for her services, and she says, "Well, what are you going to give me? I, I'll, I'll give you a goat from my herd. Well, I don't have it with me." She goes, "Well, what are you going to do to pledge? To, what are you going to do to pledge to me that you're going to pay me? I don't know." She goes, "Okay, well, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to give me your signet and your cord and your staff." Verse eighteen. The signet—it's it, basically your signature. It hung—you hung it around your neck. It was your, sign, your personal signature, your staff, and the, and the cord, which, which the chain which, which uh, held your signet ring to your body, around your neck. These are highly personal items. She was essentially saying to him, give me your wallet, give me your driver's license, give me your credit card, until you bring the goat to me. So Judah does it. However, once Judah discovers, by word of mouth, that his daughter-in-law, Tamar... Uh, who's widowed, is somehow pregnant, right? He demands her life for the very thing that he's done. And when Tamar reveals the truth to Judah, he finally stops dead in his tracks in life, and he says, next slide, in verse 26, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give to her my son Shillah. And Genesis' narrator tells us that he did not know her again. Literally, in the ancient Hebrew, it was something like this. She is righteous, not me. It seems that at this point in Judah's life, he's finally humbled. And this is just the beginning for Judah in his story of a humbling process uh, that will bring out of Judah admirable Qualities. Judah becomes amongst his brothers an exemplary leader. But it all starts here when as a wretch, he's humbled. God's unlikely choices for leadership are usually ironic. They're not just eye-opening. They're sh- it's sheer irony. The irony of God's choices surprises us and destabilizes us. It's supposed to. Okay, so this is what irony is. Next slide. According to the Oxford Dictionary, irony is this. A state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects and is often amusing as a result. So irony is not what is just the opposite of what you would think should take place or what, what, what somebody should say. The result is just the opposite and quite often it produces some type of a laugh. Or a joke. I think the foundation of all humor and comedy is the fact that God loves irony. In trying to protect his own welfare, Onan lost his own life. In trying to avoid his responsibility to take care of his daughter in law, Judah ended up providing the heir himself. After losing two husbands, Tamar receives two sons. And Tamar was not the first woman, a Gentile outsider, who would have a very important impact on Israel's history. There's, there's humorous and, and funny irony. I, I always think it's terribly and, and, and hilariously ironic that Mel Brooks, who, who is Jewish, wrote a movie which became a play called The Producers. Who's the butt of all the jokes and the producers written by a Jewish man? Hitler. Hitler's the butt of all of Mel Brooks jokes. That type of, that type of irony is supposed to make you laugh. And it does if you watch the movie. Uh, there's also tragic irony like in the ancient play Oedipus Rex. The ancient Greek play where, where you have this guy Oedipus who's, who's walking around saying uh, despite the prophecy that was spoken about him. He keeps saying to himself I am not Going to kill my father or marry my mother. I'm not going to kill my father. I'm not going to marry my mother. Ah, I killed my father and married my mother. That's a tragedy though. But that was all about fate. The ancients, and I think people today, believe in fate. This impersonal, meaningless force that determines the course of our lives. That we can't fight against. But biblical irony... Biblical irony reveals the personal purposes of a good God. God's irony redirects our attention to His worthiness, not not the worthiness of our leaders. God's worthiness. His irony shakes you up, it destabilizes you, it makes you pay attention. It was extremely ironic. That the Apostle Paul, that Saul of Tarsus, the chief persecutor of Christians in the middle of the first century, became Jesus Christ's number one one advocate in the ancient Greco-Roman world. That Paul, who had formerly persecuted Christians, became the top missionary... In the first century and wrote a good portion of the New Testament for Jesus, whom he had originally persecuted. That's tremendous irony. And Paul sheds light on why God's irony is so important in your life and in human history. Next slide, please. Uh, the Corinthians were a church, but the Corinthians were very arrogant people. And they were divisive. They were broken up and in in tremendous conflict. And Paul wrote him a letter and put the slap down on him. And in the process of that, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And Paul said, this is the reason. So that no human being might be able to boast in the presence of God. Rather, quoting Proverbs, Paul wrote, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. The irony of God's choices destables our ability to say, I thought of that. I predicted that. You see that guy in charge? I knew it was, I voted for him. I knew it was going to be him. I told everybody, you know, you got to vote for that guy. I did that. I thought of that. God's irony robs you of the opportunity to say, Look at my man. Look at my woman. Look at what she's doing. I always knew it. I always knew they would be the right person. So that when leaders fail us, and they will and they do, we're not undone. God's irony shakes us up and destabilizes us and puts our focus back on Him so that when our leaders fail us, we're not disenfranchised. And we have a way of, when we are disenfranchised, recovering from it. So I want to ask you the question today, and this is not for your immediate response. Just think about it. What irony is redirecting your greatest admiration and your deepest allegiance to God? What irony are you wrestling with in your life that your creator has designed to bring your attention back to him? We shouldn't be surprised by bad performances, even by the best of people. But we are again and again. We read something in the newspaper. We hear about a friend or a teacher or a boss or a relative, somebody we've always admired and we're shocked. But should we be shocked? Another, another, just recently another evangelical mega church pastor Apparently has fallen by terrible accusations made about him in public. And just this past August, the New York Times makes this comment. In many... Now, this is a secular... This is a secular newspaper saying, in many evangelical... This is the voice of an outsider, okay? An outsider to Christianity. In many evangelical churches, a magnetic pastor is the superstar on whom everything else rests, making accusations of harassment particularly difficult to confront. Such a pastor is seen as a conduit to Christ. Protestants like to point at Roman Catholics for putting their leaders literally on a throne. But we do it too. If not in Philosophical and theological terms, in practical terms, we all put people on pedestals. Our obsession with our own leaders, whether it's political or social or ecclesiastical in, in religion, our obsession with our own leaders often leads to disappointment. And here's the kicker and division. That was the issue in the church in Corinth that Paul was trying to deal with. Because putting too much stock in our own leaders and the people we admire and respect and just slavishly following them, even against other facets and and, and other groups of people, um, uh, it ultimately leads to division, which is what Paul was speaking against. We get disappointed when our leaders fail us, but, but division takes place when our leaders succeed. When our leaders do better and better, we get prideful about the people we follow and respect over against the people we don't necessarily follow and respect and over against the people who follow other people. And Paul spoke directly to this. Next slide, please. In the same letter to the Corinthians. He said, each one of you says, I follow Paul. Or I follow Apollos. Or I follow Cephas. That was Peter. Or I follow Christ. And Paul said to them, is Christ Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? The rhetorical answer is. No, of course not. Our divisions and our conflicts are evidence that our hope and our expectations are misplaced. We're directing it towards the wrong people. Despite the admirable qualities of some men and women whom we respect and follow, God alone deserves our allegiance. God alone deserves our deepest affection. And he says through the prophet Isaiah, my glory, I will share with no one. And I'm going to find a way to redirect the attention of the people I love back to where it belongs on me. Because essentially, it is a good thing to want a leader to believe in. It is a good thing to want to believe in somebody who will never let us down. And the scandal, the scandalous aspects of God's ultimate choice reveals such a person. Next slide, please. Paul again, in his discussion with the church in Corinth said, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And because of God... You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All the things that we look for in human leaders, the things we ultimately don't get from them, righteousness and sanctification and redemption and wisdom. Paul said all of those things God gave us in Jesus. Therefore, let the one who boasts, Paul wrote. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The eternal son of God chose a stable. He was born where animals eat. He chose a poor family. He chose to be a direct descendant of the wretch Judah. Judah. He chose a working class trade. He was a carpenter. (laughs) Before he became famous, he was a carpenter. Jesus ultimately chose Jesus who was perfect. Jesus who was the person that you can believe in. Jesus chose a criminal's guilty sentence. And hung on a cross for sinners. That was the most scandalous choice That the universe has ever seen. If you think it's a scandal. What Judah did to Tamar. If you think the things you read about. In the newspaper. And the things that have happened. In our lives. That have deeply hurt us. Are scandalous. It is nothing compared. To what God did. On the cross. And in great irony. God brought resurrected life. Out of a man who seemed to everybody, to his friends and to his enemies and to Satan, dead. So that you and I could stop boasting about ourselves. And stop boasting about our favorite leaders. There's a reason Jonathan talked about the Red Sox. We now by the scandal of God and the irony of God, have the opportunity to wonder and rejoice and even laugh at the glory and goodness of our God. God's choice. Next slide. God's choice of leaders, whether they're good or bad. God's choice of caregivers, whether they're good or bad. Any kind of choice God's made, God makes will always draw our attention to his unique glory. To his infinite, incomparable goodness. How did we begin the morning? By singing the words, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has crushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us in his blood. That's ironic and beautiful and scandalous. He has washed us in his blood. He has washed us in his blood. He has brought us near to God. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we rage, that we wage and weep. Over what we do not understand. Father we mourn at the injustice in our lives. The injustice in our world. The injustice throughout history. And we are often confused about what we read in your word. Thank you that. Thank you that you're a big boy. And you're not discouraged or intimidated by our rage. And our anger and our confusion. But you invite us. To shake our fists at you and ask and question. But Father, as we question you, I pray that you would lead us beyond the mystery to a tangible sense of your goodness. I believe, Father, that Judah, that Tamar discovered your goodness, and I pray the same for us. Father, would you give us the ability someday, if, if we're not there yet, to rejoice? in awe, and in redemptive healing laughter at your ironic, scandalous love and salvation. In the name of our Savior, the Lion of Judah, amen.